evening or whatever it is for you. It is just past 11am in UK time, which makes it just past 1pm in Keith time. Oh, that was hard. And Lord knows what time it is in the American hours, but I'm sure somebody will tell me. And it is also Friday, the 10th of November, 2023, for those who need to know. Welcome back, folks. You know what to do. This is the time that you need to retweet and tell everybody that we have a guest as well, because uh, all this stuff is happening. And uh, oh, look, we have Tim in the co-host spot as well. I think he's going to steer this ship and uh, get us back on track. So, yeah, apologies, Pekka. That is just the way of things. Thank you very much. I, I appreciate it. Maybe there are people who don't know me. My expertise revolves around social media and disinformation. I've looked quite closely to Russian disinformation and their information operations. I'm an independent researcher. I don't get any funding at the moment from any governments or organizations. I have a website uh, and a, th a Twitter thread series called Vatniksuk, uh, so vatniksuk.com. Uh, I think there are totally now actually a bit more uh, entries where I go through individuals who I consider to be pro-Kremlin and so-called Vatniks, so people who promote or spread and or support Kremlin narratives like the Vyagotham Slats or neo-Nazis in Ukraine, this kind of basic things. The website is very easy to use. You can search for your favorite Vatniks there. Donald Trump, Vivek Ramaswamy. I try to do my work and research. I, I try to make everything evidence-based. So I try to find sources for everything. Of course, rap, I, I try to be also skeptical about different sources, be it New York Times or whatever. The idea there is to increase awareness of Russian disinformation and information operation strategies and how they spread their narratives and who are people who spread them. And I usually try to also go to what motivates them to do what they do. We also have a YouTube channel. I think we're going to more and more towards video because we can bring out more stuff in a, in a more meaningful way and uh, use this multimedia approach. It's called the Soup Central. You can find it on YouTube. Uh, we will start publishing new episodes quite soon. The next one will be on Elon Musk, so you might enjoy that. I started doing this 13 months ago when I had 80 followers. Now uh, the, the, the account has grown quite a bit since then. And of course, you feel like somebody should be covered or some organization or some topic or so-called botnik should be covered, you can always send me a direct message or even if you just have questions or want to talk about this stuff. It's a good time for Pekka to be here, actually, because yeah, disinformation and yeah, pushing out these narratives is something that uh, trying to combat on a regular basis. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I fully agree with that. We, I would say that the West is definitely, again, falling behind on this what's called information warfare. And yeah, well, it, almost every time I mention this kind of asymmetrical information war that we are involved in, where the other party is not worried about telling the truth. They're worried about creating narratives that can be completely false, but support their kind of politics and policies. 
it's very difficult to fight this kind of because basically we, they put the pressure of doing fact-checking and debunking of narratives, they put the pressure on the West and uh, figuring out the truth is fully done by the West medias and Western countries and organizations and so on. So it's extremely easy to create high volume of propaganda when you can just lie. It's very easy to come up with new stuff or recycle old photos or videos and claim that it happened today or yesterday. So this is something that we are fighting against and it's working remarkably well in today's social media uh, environment because it's very immediate. It's uh, news. Uh, the news feed is really fast. It's all updating all the time. So, uh, as soon as you see something, you come up with this kind of emotional reaction and it's uh, this often the first uh, version of, of news kind of imprints in your brain. So you, people tend to stick, those research on this, they tend to stick on to the first uh, version of the news. So it's very difficult to change people's mind after that, which is why if you look at the down shooting of and team done by the uh, Ukrainian separatist uh, Russian uh, soldiers, including Igor Kirgin, Russia came up with their own version, like immediately. And uh, if other news to Nord Stream, I did, it took them, it didn't take them long to use ciphers, feeding information about the details of the, what happened and blame the US force for the incident. So. It's very difficult. If you have this kind of sabotage on international waters or, or national waters, it's very, it takes a long time to investigate. But suddenly we have ciphers with all the information about CIA operation, and this becomes this kind of consensus on, on, on the whole incident. And for a while with the, with the MH17, the consensus was also that it, it could have been a Ukrainian fighter jet that shot down. They even made photoshops of this publish the photos. So this is why we are in danger. And there's actually now, nowadays, so I can give you two examples, how they've been using this in recently. It's not really, it's partly information warfare, but it's also hybrid warfare. The first incident is the so-called anti, sorry, the NATO Guran um, burning incidents that we've seen in Sweden. We now know that around March this year, Russia paid some people to do all the Erdogan protests around Europe and try to prevent the NATO accession of, of Finland and Sweden this way. And these, it was a team of three people. They went to many European countries, they took photos and videos, and they immediately put it online. So this is like, they tried to make viral material or videos or photos or whatever, and then immediately put it online and try to make it the hot news of the day by using their troll farms and bot networks to spread it far and wide. And sometimes they use these so-called super spreader accounts like Jackson Inkle. Yeah. So they see these accounts and they try to create these new narratives. This is uh, something. But the second example is it very recently happened. So maybe some of you saw this far David graffiti that was painted, especially around France, but around Europe. On walls, and it immediately became a viral thing. So it's going around around the social media on many platforms. But it turned out that this was actually a Russian-funded operation. 
So but there were two couples and then a photographer. So team of threes, again, team of threes. So one photographer or one who does the, the video production and two people doing their, the act itself. So they, they were spray painting these stars of David or two, I don't know, Jewish businesses, walls of Jewish businesses and so on, trying to create another viral kind of event of anti-Semitism. So it's this very, it's often organized. The money is coming from, I don't know, usually some oligarchs or some shell companies. And then you try to do these events, organize these events that seem grassroots and organic. Uh, but yet they are fully funded by the Kremlin and planned and organized by the Kremlin. We, we've seen this and also this so-called anti-war sentiment. I've been talking about it quite a bit and in previous segments, it was fully planned by the Kremlin, uh, and partly funded too. So we, we know about this stuff, but it seems that in the West, nobody cares. It's uh, unfortunate because these are really hurting our democracies and hurting our media too, because it's blatant propaganda. Russia funding anti-Semitism in Europe should be news. I don't know if people disagree, but I think like this should be a big topic of discussion, uh, or, or Russia provoking anti-Turkey sentiment around Europe. Another thing that should be discussed more about, of course, people already know that this, this is something that potentially happens, but we have the, we have the smoking gun, we have the evidence. Uh, so why isn't anything being done about this? It's, it's, to me, it's, it's a bit, uh, uh, depressing to be honest, but yeah, uh, before we crashed, I was talking, I, I thought I would talk about the upcoming election, 2024 U.S. presidential election. Big event that will affect the world as a whole. Most countries around the world will be affected by this. I would assume that a lot of people on this base would support Joe Biden's presidency, but of course, I'm sure if you disagree, maybe you can state why you would support Donald Trump. I don't see any other realistic candidates, to be honest, at this point, unless some legal issues prevent Trump from running, but I don't believe in that either. But as I said before we crashed, I've been writing quite a bit about Russian interference in, in different elections uh, around the world, but especially about the 2016 uh, US election when like, Trump won Hillary Clinton on the so-called Russian gate. I think like Russiagate is, it's, it, I think it's, it was for, people say Russiagate, they think of this, that it's a, it, it didn't happen. Right. It's been all, its effect has been over stated or like it's been exaggerated, but I fully disagree because it's part of this hybrid warfare approach that Russia has been using for a long time and diminishing its effect would be, uh, I, I think, I feel like it's an understatement. Because through research, we already know that the Russian disinformation at that time, 2015, 2016, was heavily concentrated and the exposure was focused on people who identify as Republicans. And basically there was a lot of smear and character assassinations against Hillary Clinton during that time, as you, many of you remember. And what came out of this, I called, I call it the post-truth politics. So Donald Trump, as most of you, he doesn't care about the truth either. It's like Russia, the, the truth does really not matter. He can say whatever 
he can and there are absolutely no consequences for this. He is not, nobody's gonna, going to, none of his voters will judge him for lying. That's something that we've already noticed. And another thing is that voters tend to forget a lot of stuff. If you look at Donald Trump, I think the Washington Post, uh, I think they were tracking his lies. And it was something like 30,000, let me, yeah, over 30,000 lies over four years. That's quite a few lies while while he was the president. And of course you have all the lies he he did before he was the president. I I think we are living in this post-truth society where emotions trump over the truth. You can say basically whatever you want to smear your opponent or you promote yourself or your party. And yeah, as I said, many times there are no, absolutely no consequences for this. The fact-checking machinery isn't really, it's not functional moment. There is no instrument to check politicians or anyone else's lies. It's, uh, yeah, another very depressing situation. But if somebody has any comments or questions, I could, we could maybe take them now. On the Russian interference, my understanding is that very little kind of court admissible evidence of specific people colluding has been found. Why do you think that is? It, if you think about the Mueller report, the Mueller report was quite, was quite, shall we say, full-throated in its claims that yes, Russia interfered with, interfered with the election, but it didn't, it, as to my understanding, it didn't really commit on the culpability of individuals in that collusion despite the fact that it did conclude that U.S. law was broken. Why doesn't this stuff seem to stick? As I said, I think the culture has, in general, has changed. People don't care that much about truth anymore. Uh, They care about how they feel. Uh, It's more about, it feels like I'm putting people down in general, but it feels like we are, many of us, probably in some part, me too, we degenerated into this kind of, we we resort back to using our lizard brain where our, our basic emotions are informed. So uh, like anger, disgust, hey, these kind of emotions are very strong when they are related to decision-making and uh, this kind of post-truth society where you just basically tell true a lie after a lie. It's very engaging also. It's, it immerses the, immerses people to listen and it engages them and they can make some very interesting narratives and they can entertain us. And yeah, I just feel like our rationality has decreased a lot since I'm not going to play fully social media, but this kind of post-truth society where information is extremely abundant. We are living also in this kind of attention economy where we want to be entertained. We want to get new information all the time. So it's just something that we've kind of become a degenerate. In that sense, our rationality has decreased dramatically. I know I sound quite pessimistic, but that's how I see the situation. For me, I don't think there's any other explanation for this kind of So. Basically, politicians, for the longest time, they really haven't had much accountability, but I feel like that it's close to zero now. Sure. Thank you very much, Pekka. I read an interesting piece of research a couple of years ago that it was American-focused, so it may or may not apply to Europe. I don't know. But the conclusion of this research was that political advertising doesn't actually work. 
which is striking given how much particularly American politicians spend on such advertising. They spend money on advertising in Europe as well, the UK in particular. But in America, this is like a multi-billion dollar thing when there's an election adverts. Now, this makes me, this makes me a little skeptical of social media influence operations when it comes to elections in particular. Do you think that this stuff is moving the needle in any realistic sense? I think it is. I think it's moving it just as much as it needs to move. I'm not an expert on US election, but we all, most of us probably know that there are these so-called key states. Uh, basically, some of these states are like almost impossible to flip them. Some of them are like definitely Democrat and some of them are demo- definitely the Republican. Uh, but there are these kind of like uh, key states that can flip to either uh, direction. And for example, when he, when uh, those who remember this Cambridge Analytica incident where they data mined a huge amount of data from Facebook and then made some, utilized some behavioral sciences to this data set and then used some targeted marketing towards people who they consider to be someone who may flip. So somebody who may vote either Democrat or a Republican, and they were shooting, they were sharp shooting at these targets. They were using targeted ads and so on. But the thing, ads don't work anymore. That's true. If they don't, ads are extremely ineffective because we see so many of them and uh, we are also quite skeptical about what is an ad and so on. So a lot of talk, talk about like corporate plans, corporate plans and so on. But what does work still is organic grassroots activities and recommendations coming from real people, which is why a lot of these campaigns are these days, they are made look grassroots and like organic. This, this is something that doesn't feel like an ad. It just feels like somebody is actually talking to us and connecting with us. It's another person. And this is something that is extremely effective. And we see, so early next year, maybe I can already talk about this. Early next year, we will publish a paper for NATO Stratcom on, on Chinese disinformation. And one of the findings is that these so-called official channels like embassy accounts and diplomat accounts, they are not very effective in spreading disinformation because they are so blatantly biased. So a lot of this it's externalized to so-called super spreaders. I, every time I talk about Jackson Google, but I'm just going to mention him because he's one of the biggest words. These super spreaders, so huge accounts who seem organic, who seem like they are genuinely worried about something, spreading any kind of message or narratives through these kind of channels, super spreader channels, is very effective because it seems organic. And that's why... For example, social media influencing is such a big thing, usually young, relatively attractive men or women advertising something like makeup or jeans or whatever. Social media, it works because you, you, a lot of these people who follow them feel connection, connected to this person. So it's like this, there's, they feel like there's this personal connection and this person is talking to them and this is extremely effective. It's like. Somebody from your family telling you something, you usually give it much more weight than, than a stranger or, or a corporation saying something, which is basically a lot of advertising these days is 
they try to make it seem organic and grassroots. Sure. Thank you. That makes sense. Thank you very much for that, Pekka. Uh, we have a few hands, so let's go Bill Barr, Randy, then Shlomo. Bill, you're up. Hi. Thank you. How am I coming through? You're okay. Yeah, you're okay. Wonderful. I am really nervous about joining the conversation this morning. I'm going to get out of my comfort zone. I am a President Trump supporter, and I wish I could talk with more people and, and set the record straight from my point of view. It, this thing, the first thing about tracking the lies that somebody has stated, I, I noticed that I don't recall the number of lies that other politicians have stated get tracked. President Trump did. And I, I, I don't believe a word of it. What I believe is that all politicians lie. It is incredible. They have uh, an ability to forget um, what they said, whether it was five years ago, 10, 20, 30. We have many men and women that have been in D.C. Uh, in politics, holding an office for a long time. And things they said in the 90s, they contradicted in the 20 teens and few people ever say I felt this way in the 90s but as things have progressed now I don't that's not my stance this is the way I feel now they just cognate themselves that's all there is to it and President Trump is no exception but one of the things that I learned early about President Trump was that, and I sincerely believe this, I saw the interview he did with Oprah in the 90s. He asked him, have you ever considered running for president? And he paused and said, I, I don't know. I Maybe if I could help. And that is where he comes from. He wants to help America. He believes in America. And like any other nation, we all have our faults and we all have our positive things. And President Trump, English politics or Swedish or French, but in American politics, since our country was formed, um, people have said incredibly mean and nasty things and invented scenarios that were not true to smear their opponents. And they also have always concocted stories to make themselves look good. And this is a very unfortunate thing about American politics. And honestly, it's been going on since but President Trump, that is what I believe. And when he was talking to, when he went to Europe and was, when he was in office and he was talking about the lack of NATO contributions from the NATO countries that weren't spending their 2%, it was because he knew what a threat Russia was. He had a, a relationship with Putin simply because it was a tool he could use when he was building his financial 
I hate using the word empire. That's, I don't know the right word to use. But as, as he was doing his business, that he didn't like American banks and Russian banks were available. So that's where he went because that was the best deal. Um, I Bill, don't believe he was. Bill, please bear in mind, we are in a guest segment here. So it's not really the time or place for monologues. So I am so sorry. Please, I, yeah, sorry. It's okay. It's, it's Pekka's segment. So he's a, he's a special guest. So if you have, okay. you, 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 you've made, you've made some points there. If you have a question or a comment for Pekka, if you please make it back. No, I'm sorry. I heard Pekka comment about President Trump and it, it really got me going. I, but I, I apologize. I, I will step down. Thank you for the airtime. It's not an issue. Thank you very much for that, Bill. Trump is one of those Marmite things. I, my personal belief is that the, he had a number of things that he was entirely correct on. What particularly springs to mind is the underinvestment by European countries in defense. I think he was absolutely spot on that. His criticism of Germany's economic reliance on Russian, on Russian hydrocarbons. I think he was totally correct on that. And a number of other cultural things that aren't relevant to the space or to Ukraine. But I go to Pekka on that because Pekka will want to, will probably want to push back on some of that. Uh, yeah. For me, always, so a lot of talk about when we, when people talk about America, the United States, people often talk about it, it's land of the free and it's this democratic country that also promotes other countries to become democratic too. Of course, it's a lot of that is also denied, but it's like also this idea like you have these organizations like National Endowment for Democracy that try to bring democratic uh, processes to countries like authoritarian countries where, where these don't exist, which have a high level of corruption and so on. And then I don't see, for me, it doesn't really, if you think of these ideals, Trump, in my view, doesn't fit in this, this kind of idea. And the reason is, I already mentioned the lie, of course, all politicians, I would say that 99.9 politicians, they lie. That, that's, we, we all know that we shouldn't be uh, lying about that. Uh, but also, he tends to praise a lot of authoritarian figures and a lot of authoritarian or even totalitarian regimes like North Korea. It's very difficult for me to... I just ask the question, why is he doing this? And we all, of course, we all know his history with, with Russia, but also I feel like he is to a national U.S. national security. And we all know about these classified documents that he was keeping at his home and other places. We also know that he's provided information to Russian high-level officials, Lavrov, like highly classified information. And she's basically, so I'm saying, I think my, my, my message here is that I see Trump as extremely pro-Kremlin and I'm from Finland, well, right next to us to the east is Russia. And I see that if Trump becomes the president, Russia becomes much, much bigger threat to its neighbors, like the Baltic countries, Finland, of course, Ukraine, Georgia, Moldova, and it, it's, it, it creates a large, very recent situation 
around Europe. And I, I, I understand where Trump is coming from with, with this idea of isolationism that you United States shouldn't meddle in others' businesses so much, like should focus on their own economic growth and so on. But he's also extremely pro-Kremlin, uh, pro-North Korea, in, in some ways even pro-China or pro-Xi. So this is, I see it as a danger to the whole world rather than danger to the population of all people of the United States. And Bill, you will probably disagree with me, but I would like to hear why and how you see this thing differently. Okay. I, President Trump, on his comments, there's, a, there's an old saying about commenting on somebody, if it isn't true, if it isn't kind, if it isn't necessary, then don't say it. And I think that's what he was using when he would compliment these evil world leaders. And it, it was no idle threat when he told, I, I cannot pronounce his name, Kim Jong-un, if that's the North Korean leader's proper update. He said, don't do it. Because you will see retribution like nobody's ever seen. President Trump meant that. That was not an empty threat. And when I can't remember what happened in the Middle East, but one morning we woke up to find that he had authorized a cruise missile strike on a Russian airbase in Syria. He, they lobbed 60 cruise missiles or something at them. That was a statement of strength that I'm not fooling around. You guys stay in line because we have the ability and we can punch you right in the jaw. Over. Can I just add that isolationism is not necessarily strength. Stronger together is how I feel. Uh, oh, I really don't believe that it was isolation. It was simply that President Obama did not have America's best interest at heart. And I'm sure well, and that, that's did. where we get to the point where it's, oh, this person's bad, that person's bad. Nobody is perfect, unfortunately. But I think when some people have, let, let's just say that other things in mind, such as their own, their own intentions, such as we see with Orban, for example. And Erdogan, they do a lot of things which are for themselves personally and their, the betterment of their system, but not necessarily for the betterment of the country. And that, that's where my worry is, that some, sometimes they need to just think a little bit bigger, perhaps. Pekka, do you want to come back on that at all? Yeah, sure. Anybody who is saying, uh, uh, like, I'm saying this really straightforward, but it's anybody who is saying that Trump is not pro-Russia, I would say that they don't know what they're talking about. Maybe I can say something like as a list. So first of all, everybody remembers or anybody who watched the Helsinki summit where Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump met, that was a disaster for the United States. There's no going around it. And basically Donald Trump went against U.S intelligence services and said he believed 
at Vladimir Putin instead of them. And then basically the Trump organization planned to give Vladimir Putin 50 million penthouse in Trump Tower, Moscow, when that was planned. Then there was the shady deal, Russian paying 95 million to buy Trump's mansion at Palm Beach. That was valued, I think it was valued to maybe 40 million next year. And all these kind of shady deals. But also she was planning on doing a cybersecurity unit together with the Russians. He wanted to lift the sanctions on Russia after they invaded Crimea. He also wanted to return Russia to cheese and he eased sanctions or sanctions on Russian oligarch Oleg Deribaska, who is very closely related to Vladimir Putin. And I already mentioned the, you know, he revealed highly classified information to Sergei Lavrov and to the Russian ambassador. A lot of many people from his uh, inner circle were involved in meddling with the Russian uh, officials during the 2016 US election. And they were even planning to buy dirt on Hillary Clinton from them, from the Russians. Basically, uh, it's called Putin's plan to annex parts of Ukraine, but in the genius plan, smart plan. And in but 2019, he froze USA with almost $400 million, million to Ukraine. They sold the sales of Javelin anti-tank missiles to Ukraine, probably because they were in fear, in fear of anger in Putin. I, I can go on forever. And a lot of these people were later sentenced to prison sentences. Like Paul Manafort was sentenced to prison, Roger Stone who's also, who was part of Trump's inner circle, possibly is still, was sentenced and they were pardoned by Mr. Trump. And uh, yeah, there's so much stuff here. A lot of, there was a GOP strategist that was sentenced to 18 months of prison from the Trump team because of taking money from the Russians. So how, how do you deny the connection? To me, it's just. Very difficult to deny the connection and this kind of pro-Kremlin stance, but it would be nice to hear, is there some kind of four-dimensional chess that I don't understand? But I would also like to hear from Randy because I see he's here and I know he's from the, he supports the Republicans, so I would like to hear also from him at some point. But maybe you can, or somebody, maybe you can say, what if, if I'm misunderstanding something about this, is it just a grand trial or... Thank you, Pekka. By all means, yes, let's go to Randy, because Randy is on his way back up. Randy, welcome back. You were, you wanted to jump in on this stuff. Hello, I'm sorry, I, I missed that. Hi, Randy, welcome back up. You wanted to jump in on this topic, so Pekka asked to go to you. Yeah, okay, Trump's a narcissistic amateur, and he says stupid shit all the time. I am extremely active in trying to get somebody else nominated. However... I find it enormously ironic that Pekka obviously does not believe the New York Times stories on Ukraine, but he buys every single New York Times story on Trump, a lot of which was BS. Trump is erratic and inconsistent. Some of the things he did were really stupid. Manafort was a ridiculous hire that brought all this Russian baggage with him. He said stupid things about world leaders, thinking if he buttered them up, it would be easier to do a deal with them, thinking he's dealing with some Manhattan real estate deal and not geopolitics. However, Trump's 
kibosh funding for uh, Nord Stream. Trump attacked Wagner in Syria and destroyed them. Trump shot up a uh, Russian ally, Syria, when they crossed Obama's red line, which Obama officials admitted later they didn't even, they didn't have the nerve to do. So he did a lot of anti-Russian stuff and some visibly pro-Russian stuff and is erratic. Uh, um, I, I'm, I'm not going to defend him. I'm just going to say all these allegations are in that the, the, he was actively colluding with the Russians. There was absolutely no evidence of that, despite $50 million spent trying to prove it in federal subpoena power and perjury power and everything else. Um, and there, there was no active collusion. He's probably not nearly clever enough to collude cleverly with the behind the scenes with the Russians. The biggest Russian interference in the election was probably the allegation that Trump was involved with Russia. And there's empirical evidence, not a New York Times story. That story started by the Hillary Clinton campaign. And there's memorandums from the White House and Brennan's handwritten notes that established that. So I never go to a press opinion on anything. I go to empirical facts. So anyway, I would say his performance against Russia was uneven. Uh, he's not a reliable president to stand up to Russia. I agree with all that, but I think a lot of the rest of the stuff is hyperbole and junk. Right now, I, I get upset. I, I don't try to do Finnish politics, Polish politics, although I've been here 20 years. I don't do anything but American politics because I lived and breathed it for 30 years. I'll give you some facts. Trump is leading in polls and swing states by 5%. Biden is way down. The Democrats are panicking. There's a move to try to replace Biden. There's no active Biden campaign structure, for example, and they're really fretting. But that's very misleading statistics about Donald Trump, because a generic Republican, just fill in a Republican presidential candidate versus Biden, is leading by even more than Trump. And Nikki Haley in those same states is leading by uh, five to five to even 10% more than Donald Trump is. The, the polling data right now is not consistent unless you really dig into the internals. The kind that's fleshed on the news is meaningless. And Trump's not inevitable. He's going to lose Iowa. He may win New Hampshire, but there'll be either Haley or DeSantis is going to emerge with a, a lot of votes in New Hampshire. The only issue, and then once he's convicted of something, and he will be convicted of something, much of his support will bleed off and before Super Tuesday, where most of our delegates are awarded, I think that he will have faded. I hope. I'm personally pulling for Haley. I'm a Republican activist and Haley runs better in the general election than any other names Republican at this point against Trump and much better in the swing states. She is much more a traditional Republican. She is moderate, a moderate conservative on a lot of issues and a very strong Reagan type foreign policy. And I think that, uh, that's a political winner. And that's where we're at. I, I will say that no matter who is elected president and is sworn in January of 2025 and, and Ukraine will get more aid out of Congress. They have 75% support in Congress for more aid. By January 2025, the war will be in very clear direction in Ukraine's favor. And any American president that advocated pulling the plug at that point would be uh, politically, it would be political suicide.
it doesn't matter who the president is at that point. I've always said that Ukraine, it's all in Ukraine's hands, how they use effectively the aid they've got, how they respond to corruption. And so far, I think they've been spot on everything and, and they have a winner both on the battlefields and in the political arena. As to comments about advertising and disinformation, I've said before, the problem now is people have too much information. They don't know what to believe. So they tend to focus on the source. If you don't have much time and you're out there working a, a long shift at the factory and you come home and you, you got one show you want to watch, well, people, many people would get tuned on for better, the leading news commentary show on American TV was Tucker Carlson on Fox. So they tune into Tucker Carlson. They don't realize his father is a registered lobbyist for Hungary. They don't realize, for example, that DeSantis foreign policy advisors are from Heritage Foundation and Heritage Foundation was running out of money because the old Reagan donors basically died or became inactive and their youngsters that controlled the family fortunes were not contributing to Heritage. So they got, Heritage got money from Victor Urban and Hungary. And then overnight, they switched from gung-ho gung-ho Ukraine aid, stop the slow drip, give them everything they need now to don't give them anything because, and then the because reasons were always the garbage, throwaway, trash things that have been debunked. And that's where Heritage is now. And unfortunately, that's where Ron DeSantis is. And I believe that issue will probably cost Ron DeSantis the uh, presidency because the non-Trump voters are overwhelmingly pro-Ukraine aid. The anti, the, I'll call them aid skeptics are Trump voters and he's not, DeSantis is not going to get the nomination from my getting Trump voters at this point. Anyway, that's my take. I only go on facts. I try not to have an opinion on something unless I can anchor it on a fact. I think Trump's political influence is enormously overstated. I think he's had possibly a mental breakdown since he lost in 2020. He has trouble speaking coherently now. He can only talk about himself. When he came to office, he was recognized when he, in 2016, he was talking about the working and middle classes being screwed by the system. He was absolutely right. Saying the same thing, actually, that Bill Clinton had said the same year, but now it's all about him and people aren't buying it. He used to have 50 or 70,000 person rallies, just amazing. And the biggest venues he could get, the one he just had in Hialeah, Florida had, it was a high school football stadium capacity of about five or 6,000 people. And he couldn't fill that up. I don't believe the polls, number one, polling data. I'm in Poland. I believe the polls, but don't believe the polling data and certainly don't, certainly don't believe that the, any elected Republican president is going to bug out on Ukraine when they're actually winning. I just think that's literally impossible. No one would what go down in any party as the president who lost Ukraine to Russia. It's just, just not going to happen. Thanks. All right. I, may yeah, I? Of course. Okay. Oh gosh. Uh, CRS again. Hey, let me step down. I have to regather my thoughts. Yeah, no worries. Maybe I continue briefly. So. When, as you said, Randy, we should be skeptical about any news or any kind of investigation, but and believe the data, but the data is there. The, the evidence is also there for, or against, for Trump being pro-Russia, for being pro-Kremlin. 
Uh, I, I believe, I personally believe that he might not be pro Kremlin, but just wants probably he's after money and business in yeah. some sense also. But, but it, it, just, it was quite refreshing to hear. Uh, I disagree on many points, but for example, yes, I disagree on many points there. But I still feel like the polling data is, the, the problem right now is that for some reason, people seem to dislike Joe Biden more than they dislike Trump. And it's, this seems to be the problem. And uh, as is tradition, when something like you have, if you have a lot of high inflation and the prices going up and life is getting more difficult, you tend to blame the people who are in charge. And as of now, as of today, it's Joe Biden, of course, but yeah, to not make it too much about politics, because I'm not really an expert on politics. I tend to talk more about disinformation and information operations, and those are very closely related to elections. Every election is these days, it's basically about propaganda. It's about disinformation and most Elections are also about more about defaming the the opponent rather than promoting yourself. People seem to have realized that it doesn't really like you promoting yourself doesn't have as big effect as just defaming other your opponents. And it's again, it's a very old KGB strategy or compromise. It's probably not invented by KGB, but it was utilized heavily by KGB and it, it's been utilized heavily by Putin too. So compromise has been this weapon, weapon against enemies for a long time. And also and when he was working for Boris Yeltsin, this was the compromise was weaponized quite a bit to get rid of any potential lawsuits, for example, against Boris Yeltsin uh, for their corruption or, or the Yeltsin family. But yeah, maybe that that's basically what I have to say about Trump. I feel like there's going to be, we're going to see a lot of modern technology will be utilized in some way, probably during this election cycle. I think we're going to see some deep fakes, especially audio will be something. I believe that we will have fake audio, like phone calls or discussions or this kind of stuff, because yeah, it's been, for example, slow in Slovakian, recent Slovakian uh, election, it was used and it's. Of course, it's difficult to say how effective it was, but it might still swing, even if it swings half a percent, it's, it might be enough. Yeah. So I, I think this will be the election when we see AI being utilized heavily. And of course, we don't know. We already know that there's still these troll farms and bot farms have been active on Twitter slash X. Again, they've been. They came back after Elon took over because Elon got rid of the safety team and there's nobody looking after their activities. So they, they are here. They are also active on other platforms. And I think, I feel like people are underestimating the power of social media and influencing online influencing as this kind of social manipulation tool in regard of elections or opinion in general or on geopolitical issues or any issues. It's basically, yeah, it's just marketing or is marketing that's tried to make look organic, but it's definitely a powerful tool and uh, anyone who denies it's affected, I would at least like to hear an explanation why they think uh, it's an ineffective tool. When you think about social media in general, it's basically, it's this ubiquitous thing that's 
basically everything we do in life these days is uh, revolving around like a lot of stuff is revolving around social media. So we, for example, we fill out surveys to find out who to vote for. We provide information to algorithms to find us a job or love. Most of the dating scene has moved to online. So we get a lot, we get a lot of info, most of our information from online and social media platforms. So underestimating its effect is, is a dangerous thing because that's what exactly what happened when we underestimated Russian disinformation operations that started 2013. We underestimated for too long and now we see the results. And again, I feel like we are underestimating it uh, with, with the Russia-Ukrainian war, but also with, uh, with the situation in, in Middle East. Yeah. This is why work such as yours is so important, Pekka, right? It's the real fight back against this is not so much at the press level, it's more at the citizen level. So we have organizations like Bellingcat, we have people like you being very active. Indeed, we have Maria Report as well. It's, it work, it seems to be a lot more effective if it's organic, right? Yes. So, well, how I, how I see this thing is that nations and, uh, governments and organizations, they are slow. So they are these big ships that turn really slow. Whereas open source intelligence groups like Bellingcat, they are extremely, they're always ready to be deployed to do an investigation. 24-7, you have somebody like this watchdog who's all, 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 always looking at the information that's coming through social media and then immediately start investigating it. Without Bellingcat, we could still do different theories on the downshooting of M817 could still be going around. Whereas now Bellingcat actually done incredibly good work. Their investigation they provided so much evidence that it's actually Igor Kirkin and his separatist friend of allies who shot down the plane and this it's not even being discussed and it's just being used as an example of how evil this kind of the whole so-called separatist program was or like how hostile evil evil is probably right but hostile and uh, so we could still be talking like with North Stream, we, we're still talking about we have probably four or five different theories that are still being like competing with each other but what I see is the pro-Kremlin segment is still pushing Nord Stream quite a bit. So basically the US slash CIA did it. Whereas in, in let's say, pro-West, pro-Western country segment is not really talking about it anymore. So there are, I mean, there's probably investigations, but I don't think they matter anymore because the narrative has been set by the Kremlin really quickly. And another example would be the so-called hospital bombing in Gaza. That this is actually, this is like the opposite. So very quickly, many news media decided to believe the Ministry of Health from Gaza or anybody, basically the pro-Hamas side, that it was Israeli missile that hit the hospital and over 500 people died. Then open source investigators started looking into it and they gathered a lot of evidence that it was probably a misfired missile or intercepted missile that landed actually on a parking lot, not in the hospital. But still a lot of these big papers were, were announcing that 500, over 500 people have died in a, 
Israel missile strike in, in Gaza. So I guess my point here is that these kind of organizations, open source investi investigation organizations and individuals, they are very agile. They are very quick to act on any kind of breaking, breaking events. And when you think about governments and bigger organizations, they cannot really, very difficult for them to keep up. And uh, yeah, I guess what I'm trying to say is that legacy media has lost lot of its power in this sense, in reporting about in recent events, because they are not quick enough to act on that. And uh, yeah, I guess I'm, I, I, in a sense, I'm part of this because I'm actively analyzing social media and these inf information narratives and so on, and try to bring out this information to basically my followers, but also to listeners of media and, and other podcasts and so on. So. I feel like the role of these kind of groups, investigative groups, it's still being in a way underappreciated and in many ways they don't get the recognition they should get. I just wanted to cut in here because I can say now, sometimes we see certainly Russian disinfo putting out ridiculous things, things that are so ridiculous that we can't help but laugh, but do you think that they do that as part of a bigger scheme where they, you will focus on the ridiculous and laugh at it, but they will also be doing something a lot more subtle and insidious as well, which they're hoping will slip through because of the fact that you're laughing at the stupid stuff. For example, the video of Zaluzhny, which is quite clearly a game character made to look like him, suggesting that the people of Ukraine rise up against the government and overthrow them. Yeah, that, that seemed a bit silly, but ridiculous as it was, do you feel that's also a bit of a smokescreen for other stuff that's being slipped out a bit more quietly? Yeah, definitely. So I often talk about this Russian spinals, disinformation space called firewalls of 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 narratives that can even be, that can be contradict each other. And it's just with this high volume, high channel approach, they can just overwhelm people with the information. And if you have a lot of contradiction narratives, people also tend to get confused about this. If you have, say, five different versions of who sabotaged the North Sea, it's quite confusing. Who would you believe and why would you believe it? Because now these, even these different narratives, they are coming from different sources. So something is coming from the New York Times, something is coming from Russia, something is coming from the Nordic countries. They also have their own investigations on this. Something is coming from, I don't know, some US officials and so on. So who, who to believe here? It's very confusing. And these contradicting narratives, they often, the goal is not to brainwash us to be, I don't know, fans of Vladimir Putin, but the goal is often to confuse us and make us like question basically everything, who can be believed, but they are also quite entertaining. So they, seems that early on Russians understood that on social media, entertaining people is key to the engagement. So you write something that's very entertaining and engaging and uh, people tend to stick with that and they tend to start following this type of, of stories and narratives and storytellers. And uh, it's just the, yeah, the basic idea is to polarize, of course, to bring our opposing parties even further away from each other. 
those who support Black Lives Matter and those who oppose, they need to be pushed further apart from each other. You have this big rift between them. Then confused. So basically we don't know who to believe in anymore. There are so many contradictory Tory stories and who are like, well, these stories are completely different from each other. They don't have to make sense. They can be very extremely ridiculous, like bioweapons labs, but it's another narrative. And somebody will believe it. Like there are a lot of conspiracy theorists who believe in these combat mosquitoes who will infect only pregnant Russian women or some uh, declaring that uh, Ukrainians should just give up or this kind of stuff. So there's always be people like that. But yeah, a lot of it is, it's, it doesn't have to make sense. The goal is to entertain, confuse, and polarize. Those are the main functions or features of Russian disinformation machinery. Came up with the idea who was next, I'm afraid. It was Shlomo Monica Basiging. Shlomo, you're up. Can you hear me now? Yeah, good. Okay. Hi, guys. Good to be back in this space. Good to be able to speak to Pekka. I've got one core theme I want to ask, but I just want to reflect on something you just said about confusion. There was a, a book from years ago, a classic sort of slightly new age book called The Dao's Pooh about Winnie the Pooh. And there's a great quote from that. Uh, Winnie the Pooh says, I think, therefore I'm confused. Now, it's a funny little line, but I think there's another element of the confusion approach that Russian disinformation is using. And it's to encourage people not to think as if they think they get confused. So it's easier to stay in your lane rather than question where you're going. Uh, again, with the, uh, the ideas of uh, Jonathan Haidt's uh, analysis of moral psychology and moral reasoning, uh, although when he originally characterized it, it was more left versus right, the two dimensions of the left being uh, care, no harm, and some sense of equality being the things that engage people's moral concerns. And on the right, it was also the idea of an authority with loyalty to that authority and purity. But I think the more general term, the two creed dimensions we all share are in the center. And those three extra dimensions of authority, loyalty, and purity are at the extremes and the peripheral and the horseshoe, as you call it. So it's equally on the left and the hard left and the far. So again, if someone's stuck in those lanes with those additional moral criteria, they start doubting and questioning. There are all sorts of pressures to stop them, including a purity test, virtue signaling, and so on. There's also the idea that if there's multiple alternative narratives, rather than the simplistic narrative they've got, it's easy to follow. And then they get confused. They're forced to think they give up. So going from a place of certainty to a place of doubt. And we live in a society which encourages people to be certain. And this also creates the whole polarization narrative. Um, you can answer that. I want to just get to my core question. This is all related. You said near the beginning about the problem when a, an event occurs and it's imprinted in people's mind. And obviously when you've got OSINT and so on, to, to the truth will, will out, but maybe people won't get it. So one of the things I'm sure you are familiar with, the cognitive scientists and linguists, George Lakoff, just in case the members of the audience are not. So he's worked in the power, the effectiveness of language in communicating ideas and dealing with the idea of literal versus metaphorical language. One of the arguments he makes, which he claims, and I haven't, to be honest, I haven't checked given what you said, Pecker, about the power of sharpened advertising is when there is a, something that's false, fiction, fantasy, 
and you tend to say, this is false. I'll give an example. Israel is an apartheid state. And you start saying, showing the reasons why it isn't in terms of Arabs and Muslims heading the Bank Nuemi or being in Parliament or Knesset and so on. But you were on the, def- you were on the back foot. You were on the defensive. You are defending a point. And people don't hear all those arguments. They just hear, oh, Israel is an apartheid state. You're accidentally reaffirming it. Now, his counteraction to that was to create what was named by some journalists, the truth sandwich, although it's not the meat that matters in this case. The idea is you state a truth and follow through with the information and state a truth again uh, in some form or another, some flow and some connective way of making an argument. So the idea there is that people then do not get this automatic imprint of the negative you're defending and trying to negate. I don't know if that's so long. Sorry to interrupt, Shlomo. This is really interesting. Could you do a truth sandwich with the Israel is an apartheid state claim for us? And I'm putting you on the spot there. Okay. As I said, I've got some skeletons of arguments and something I actually wanted to develop and I haven't properly tested out yet. Israel is a fantastic country. It supports the, the economic, social, and political rights of all its minorities. And, and it's much better. So why on earth are people saying it's an apartheid state when you look at all the other countries in the Middle East and they don't have any of those minority rights. Jordan specifically is, is apartheid to the Palestinian inhabitants, citizens, something like that. Sure. Yeah. Although you can understand why Jordan is slightly iffy about the Palestinian refugees, given their history in that country. But uh, yeah, that, that's a really good example. Thank you. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, no, Tim, that's great because, because, because you're doing exactly what the, one of the points is. Instead of discussing Israel being apartheid, then suddenly they're defending, is Jordan really apartheid? You've totally changed the, uh, where, you're, where you're discussing things. That They're on the defensive suddenly. And that's part of, I think, the idea. So there are two other, two other sort of psychological manipulations I want to bring up. One is the Gish Gallop. Again, this is, was named after a creationist called Dwayne Gish, who in formal and informal debates would reel off a whole number of uh, falsehoods, fictions, or fantasies when you don't, and e- each one to address might take 10 minutes or half an hour. You don't have, you generate 20 in, in 10 minutes and you can't address them all. That's called the Gish Gallop. Now, again, that's. A very common phenomenon, specifically in debate with regard to Israel and Palestine and Hamas. And you hear it all the time, particularly when there are crypto pro-Hamas supporters. Of course, they say they're pro-peace, pro-Palestinian. And they reel up a whole, all all the classic slurs about Israel, even if that's not the particular topic. They find a way to get it in and repeat these lies. And that's a gish gallop. So a question is, so there's a question like, how does one deal with a gish gallop? And the final point, so he's all related in terms of Harry Frankfurt's famous, he's a philosopher, when he defined the term, and pray me if I can't use this term in this forum, bullshit, and contrasted it with lying. A liar cares about the truth and wants to inject a falsehood into someone, given their values, whatever the actions are, they'll do something that you want them to do, vote some way you want them to vote, et cetera. Whereas a bullshit, and I would tend to think that Trump is a bullshit, and I don't want to dive into American politics. I, I agree with Randy. It's not, my, it's, not my, it's not my area, even though I did live in the States. But I feel Trump is more of a bullshit than a liar. But then someone else, the lady spoke and said something interesting about where something absurd comes out. You can smuggle up in real stuff, what I would call Trojan horse arguments. Again, someone could say, something they don't really care about the truth with regard to 
the bombings in the, the, the bombing that wasn't an Israeli bombing. It was a, a misfiring PIJ missile landing in a car park in a hospital. But every time you get someone on, online talking about that and trying people trying to debunk that, they also smuggle in all the other blurs about Israel at the same time. It's committing a genocide, it's apartheid, et cetera, et cetera. So there's this, and it's a, and, and you also, Pe Pekka, you mentioned a key date of 2013, but certainly from my experience, this whole thing, and I, I regard this as the most successful Soviet disinformation campaign. It's been going on since the 60s and even the 50s when they invented anti-Zionism as a new socialist cause. Not just it's anti-Semitic, but it was a socialist cause to replace the original socialist cause, which was actually Zionism and was supported by the left till the mid-50s. The general question is that there are these various psychological noise. Bullshit, how do you front first? Bullshit versus lying, gish gallop, through sandwich. Uh, what's your general opinion about that in terms of actual operational tactical means that we as individuals can do to deal with this stuff out there? Okay. Maybe I'm dropping the college of X slash Twitter because that's where we are right now. And that's uh, where I have the most experience. So we make the scope smaller in that sense. Uh, that's a very good, long and good question. First of all, I would say that there's really good counter to already to Russian claims that often originate from officials, state officials or politicians or embassies or so NATO. NATO is actually has been very, yes. I say this quite often, yes. a lot of people probably feel like NATO is this ridiculous group of, I don't know, activists who I, people underestimate it's effective, of course, that's how I see it. But how I see why they are effective is that they are immediate response, quick response to a claim. For example, if any kind of embassy account, Russian embassy account makes a statement that's obviously a lie, overstatement, or disinformation in general, so half-truth, NAFO tends to attack immediately and ridicule the messenger rather than the message. Ridiculing the messenger is an uh, effective way of countering Russian disinformation. And NAFO is this immediate effect. Uh, I've called them like it's, it's a tourniquet. So when you get shot, when you are at the zero line and you get shot in the leg, you want to put on the tourniquet really quickly because to stop the bleeding and so on. And then later on, you move on to the hospital where a surgeon or a doctor might remove something from your leg or whatever shrapnel. So that's basically the act of, of debunking or fact-checking. It comes later. It's not too fast. Yeah, sorry. It's not fast enough to be effective to start checking all the facts on a recent event. So nothing is this kind of quick, it's this thing that acts really fast. And it works in a way that it ridicules the messenger. Doesn't really it often disregards the message itself. Or if it's just really ridiculous, then it also ridicules the message. But Gishkalov is tricky because I, I remember when I came on to yeah. Twitter, people would just send me this. Okay, here's ten links. Read this before we even start talking. This is like classic Gishkalov. So you have to go through this tens of links and like 
articles and you have to do a lot of research before you're even allowed to have a discussion, which is just ridiculous. And again, we see it's more, much more effective on social media to attack than to defend. It's very easy to make claims and accusations than to actually counter them. And that's what Russia has realized long time ago, probably I would say that Soviets, even the Soviets have, have realized that a long time ago, KGB tactics was just always go on the offensive. And we can even see this in, in, in the U.S. politics, like Roger, just basically Roger Stone 101 is that always go on the office, offensive, always never defend, never start defending your choices or your words. You just go on the offense, always on the offense. And we can see this, this was very big part of Trump's campaign in 2016, just always attack your opponent. But yeah, in, in on Twitter or on X, I feel like we need these social, big social movements that are preferably deorganized to coordinate and uh, collaborate to counter obvious bullshit attempts or attacks. So fight volume with volume. And uh, yeah, then the debunking and fact-checking comes later, which I've been trying to do with my threads. So why I do them on Twitter and as threads is because people are not very eager to leave social media platforms or switch from what one platform to another. So doing a counter of, of say, programming narrative on Substack, for example, or on YouTube video is not effective on Twitter. Because people do not want to switch to the other platform. They, this also something that's been researched many times, but still people try to do this. It's possible to do a multi-channel approach effectively, but it's very difficult to like make people migrate to another platform. That's also, I think that's one of the reasons why public soup has been so effective is because it's on this platform where a lot of these discussions are had. So people don't just read them and then they can move on to other stuff that they already were doing. No, Twitter. Uh, I'm not sure if I, I answered your question, maybe in part. Actually, you, you actually answered it in a surprising way. I'm not sure if I want to prepare to say what this is at the moment. I'm trying to create a parallel sister organization to NAFA, specifically to address the Islamist and uh, the, the, primarily the Islamist disinformation. Even it might have originally, did originate been Russian disinformation a long time ago. It's obviously got a, a mind of its own. In actual fact, yes, I haven't yet, but I plan to join the NASA Discord server and test out some ideas there. It's creating literally a, second, uh, a parallel organization. Hopefully it can be brothers in arms because there's clearly a lot of overlap. I'm not sure. I, I did come up with a name. I think it's very funny, but I don't want to actually publicly announce it just yet. But if anyone is NAFO associated, and you can see me here, if you could friend me and then contact me via DM, I'll be very grateful for that. What you said was very interesting was because I am, I've spent years in various arguments into the alternative medicine community and as an atheist in the sort of how you debate with religious and so on. So I'm very used to looking and analyzing, breaking down arguments, but what you said was very important is the ability to ridicule and highlight immediately and maybe have not so much care for the truth is as important in a different way to then the more careful, considered, 
analysis and debunking and fact finding, which takes longer. That wasn't clear to me. She made it clear to me this, whatever this group is going to be called, and probably I will announce it here before anywhere else, uh, dealing not with the Vatniks, but with Jihadniks. So it's something I'll, I'll come and back and maybe spin up a little space of the right people to have a specific discussion on this sometime. But yes, thank you for that. And I, Tim, you weirdly illustrated my point with the sandwich because you ended up being on the defensive on something else. That's the point, in my view. You make you switch from, as you were saying, Pekka, from defense to offense. And the truth sandwich, and I have tried it out on a few people. I just realized that, that every time I have tried it out on people, even though I don't think I was doing it very well, yet the person responds defensively, which is, I think, one of the key points to do. So thank you for that response, Tim, for let me to let me actually realize that. Anyway, back to you guys, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much for coming up, Shona. Fascinating stuff. I believe it was Crazy Kink and then Monica. Actually, Monica was ahead, but I, I oh, will I, be up. Beg your pardon. That's very gracious of you. And let's go to Monica then. Uh, thank you, Basic. As often happens in this space, I put up my hand wanting to respond to something somebody says, and then by the time I get up, the conversation kind of moves on. But I, I still do want to respond briefly to some of the things Randy said. And uh, let me start by saying I love Randy and I love his support for Ukraine. And I think the work he does on the Republican side in the United States to try to get people to rally for Ukraine is, is extremely helpful. But I, I very respectfully disagree with him about Donald Trump, and I won't go on forever. I do think you gave Randy an awful lot of time to talk about American politics, and I'm not going to go there for five or six minutes like he did. But uh, let me give a few bullet points on Donald Trump. Donald Trump's campaign torpedoed a provision in the Republican platform in 2016 to support aid to Ukraine. It was the only provision the Trump campaign cared about at all in the Republican platform, which otherwise they didn't give a rat's ass about. Uh, Donald Trump put up a gun to uh, Zelensky's head and said, you don't get any more aid until you deliver me some compromise on Joe Biden and his family. Donald Trump embarrassed the United States of America worse than I've seen any president embarrass our country in Helsinki basically giving Vladimir Putin a big hug and saying he didn't think Vladimir Putin did anything to interfere in American politics. And let's not forget one thing that Pekka is very expert on and has pointed out is Russians, actual Russian human beings, have been indicted for committing fraud in connection with helping Donald Trump get elected in 2016. And those individuals include a gentleman named Yevgeny Prigozhin, who ran a company called the Internet Research Agency, which was a boiler room which among other things, says Pekka, points out it was trying to sow divisions in the West, supporting the, the horrible ends of the horseshoe on the far left and the far right, but also supporting Donald Trump. They still support Donald Trump. The actions of the Russian government to support Donald Trump are not covert. They are quite overt. They love him on Soloviev's show. They call him our Donald. He's our man in Washington. And they still love him. So I would not call Donald Trump's history of, of acting. Oh, and let's not forget Russia. Donald Trump sold a lot of condos to Russian money launderers, which was a marriage made in heaven because Donald Trump was trying to sell overpriced condos. When you're laundering money, you don't really care how much you pay. And uh, he did have a deal in Azerbaijan with an oligarch who was very tight with Putin. And he tried to get deals in Moscow and got them, but he certainly tried to. So his ties with Russia are actual and they're not conjectural. And he certainly belongs in the realm of those profiled on Vatnik Sioux. But let me move on to where the conversation has been going. I love Smoma's contributions. And I'm often bewildered at the state of, uh, the state of play on the internet and in social media. 
Uh, I'm here literally. I think the, really the only reason I'm on Rebel Twitter is, is because of the Marie Airport. I probably would have left a long time ago. I look at it as as a, as a hopeless sort of wild west in, in which bad actors are afraid to be bad actors. Um, Pekka points out that fortunately there are some very good white knights here on on Twitter and on in social media more generally. He mentioned Bellingcat, which is wonderful. I would mention Julia Davis as, as a very helpful asset in fighting disinformation. And Pekka himself, of course, is a huge contributor. And I don't know if it's enough, though, if a handful of white knights are enough. But I love the, the NAFO example, which is a whole lot of white knights in a very decentralized sort of way. In a sense, acting individually, but also in a sense, acting in concert. And maybe that's a, a good model in terms of an organization that has the agility of individual actors, but perhaps with enough collective muscle to, to make a difference. Let me throw something else out there. The Western governments, particularly the United States government, have a history funding operations in the information space. And back in the day of the Cold War, and I was a child in the Cold War, that would have been shortwave radio. It would have been Voice of America and Radio Liberty. And I believe they're actually still around in some shape or form. But maybe we need a, a modern equivalent of that. Maybe we need our own boiler rooms and to uh, have our own technology and, and, and put the muscle and the money of particularly the American government, but other Western governments behind organized information operations. And again, this could include boiler rooms to counter the adversaries' boiler rooms, but also hackers to bring down the adversaries. It seems to me this element of the current war between autocracy and liberal democracy is every bit as important as the hot wars that are going on. And uh, we need everything at our disposal. And I wonder what you would think about having some arm of the NSA, or I'm not sure exactly which agency it would fit with then, engaging in this sort of organized counter disinformation uh, operation. Yeah, so I think they are. I believe they already are in, in some level. Where most of us know a lot of this done is word. So we don't really know what's going on. I think it was even what NSA was doing, what Edward Snowden exposed. It was like kind of unbelievable stuff. So I believe that there are these kind of these kind of activities already. But again, they are made seem organic. I'm not saying, like, of course, we all know that NAFO is 100% funded by the CIA, as a lot of these Z folks and uh, pro-criminal people tend to <laughs> claim. I believe that there are these kind of actions already being done, but in, in a way, nothing beats a good grassroots organic movement, a decentralized movement like NAFO. And if you think about it, it's, I feel like Anonymous was another it's kind of movement where decentralization and activism, it was combined without any kind of hierarchies or identities or people. Yeah. So I know I did it's completely anonymous, like the name states and still around and it's still doing you know, something every now and then and they are still kind of recognized as some, as, a, as an organization get kept that can do, that can have an effect, that can make a difference. And I feel like NAFO is a continuation of that, but it's more, it's more divided in it in what it does. For example, I considered me myself to be a NAFO member for a long time, but as people say, there is no, it's completely decentralized. So I'm just 
anybody can basically say that they're NATO when they are trying to fight the pro-Kremlin disinformation machine or propaganda. Basically, that's that, and then making maybe a small contribution to any fundraiser or crowdfunding effort for Ukraine. So these movements, they don't need leaders or they don't need hierarchies because if, they, if these hierarchies are created, it's it's actually bad for the organization. So if we look at many other social media movements, like maybe some of you remember this Connie 2012 movement. The idea was to always kind of uh, what would the guerrilla leader in Africa, that the whole movement died because the guy who started it was completely went, went. This, he was like, so that was the end of Connie. It was extremely big. It was the biggest viral movement ever when it came out on social media 2012, I think. And then it just died, like immediately. But NAFO is still going strong. It's, it's extremely strong. It's just getting stronger. And we already know that uh, from just the donations, there are around 100,000 people uh, involved in NAFO. It's a big movement that can do a lot of, stuff, lot of different things. It's very diversified, it's decentralized, and it's extremely effective, which is why I like to talk about NATO maybe a little bit too much sometimes. Thank you very much. Okay, let's go to basic ink. Oh, good morning. Good morning. This is exciting. Thank you, Tim and Mockers and the Marie Report. You guys are a golden gem in the sea of just disinformation. Hot mix. I really was just pleased to hear. Like, I'm a huge fan of you, bro. I've been following you since you had, like, I think... 16,000 followers. So it's really awesome to see your account just grow. Back at soup, just become a huge thing to the point where we've even pissed off Elon Musk. I think that's great. Yeah. If you guys don't know about Pekka, he does a lot of stuff that just calls out the Vaknix, especially in regards to Russian disinformation. I would highly encourage you guys to give him a follow. This is a total shout out and shell for him. So give Pekka a follow. Grow this account for us, us fellows. But yeah, I just wanted to make a couple things. What you say about NATO is the genius of that. I think that if there was a hierarchy or a leader, quote unquote, it would actually take away from the effectiveness. And I say this because, for instance, you make the case with, with that African warlord. I know you're talking about, but this was, forgot his name exactly. But uh, yeah, when he went nuts, the entire movement died. And so when you have a hierarchy or a leader or whatever, there's so much that's dependent on him that when the leader dies, the, the movement could suffer as well. And that's the beauty of NATO is that it's like a multi-headed dragon, if you will, to where you, 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 you could target one account, you could look at one person, you think, ah, this is the leader, right? But it's not. And everyone in NATO, it's like an inside joke. We all know we don't have a leader like the Karen meme, right? I like to speak to the manager, but there is no manager. It's just a house full of just crazed uh, individuals that we do our own thing. And that's the beauty of it is where it's not just one opinion. We have so many people that are from different walks of life, political aspects to difference of beliefs, but we're all united for one cause. And I think that's what's really beautiful and effective about me. So that's why I, I'm in NAFO. And so, yeah, you hit, you hit on the nail on the, on the head there where even though it's decentralized, we are organized. It, it's like a contradiction. And yeah, I think this would be a really good space in and of itself to talk about NAFO. I don't want to talk about NAFO all, all the entire time, but we've, you know, we've seen the fellas here. They appreciate the shout out. And uh, we do appreciate you, Pekka, for doing your work. I just want to say thank you for doing that and to continue doing that. I always retweet your Vatnik soups and all that good stuff because you're, you're a great guy and good to have in our fellowship. So thank you for, for your work, really. Thank you. If there are questions now, which are probably a good time to read us. We have 10 minutes left. Okie dokie. Let's go back to basic ink in that case. Thank you. 
Yes. Actually, Pekka, I, I had a question. Did, was it true that you worked with, I mean, if you can or cannot verify, I understand that, but was it true that you actually worked with fellas to reveal, I guess, was it the Dom Bass? Babushka, I, I could begin her name wrong, but basically she was a, a pr pretty big pro Kremlin account. She turned out to be like a Navy veteran in the United States. Is it true that you work with other fellows to, I guess, expose that? Yes. I still do work with them. It's where they even have a name now. It's called the Armed Intelligence Agency. So it's just a group of individuals from the open OSN community. They do amazing work by using open source databases to figure out, find out information about the individuals. Some call it doxing, but when, for example, I, when I report on people, I don't, I never publish any addresses or full names unless they de-anonymize themselves previously. Yeah. So I work with them actively. I, I love their work and yes. that you don't follow them. Probably many of you don't know, or maybe not haven't even heard of the group. You can find them, uh, their account name is on Inco agency. So go and give them a follow. So they, they also now do some like independent investigations where I'm not involved. Basically I'm a megaphone there for their research. Uh, of course we coordinate and collaborate together, but basically I'm the channel that's being used to publish a lot of this stuff. Among other things, uh, topics we, we did, uh, expose, uh, this, um, lady from originally from New Jersey who prete pretended to be a Russian or yeah, a Russian lady who lived in Luhansk or in Ukraine. And uh, yeah, they, she was faking the worst Russian accent ever. And people got suspicious and started looking into the matter. And yeah, we found out a lot of information about her. She was a non-commissioned officer for U.S. Navy and Wall Street Journal did a front page article on her. So that was probably my biggest achievement in, in this work, but also of course the Army Intelligence Agency's biggest achievement. Sorry. I just wanted to add, I love the Army Intelligence Agency very much. Thank you, Marcus. Uh, let's go G-Man and stabilize the thing. Uh, last couple of questions for Pekka before we let him escape. Uh, thanks. Tim. Just a question about whether you looked into this, these groups, the Palestinian protests in London, there's an article in the Times today or else yesterday about the, the pro-Palestinian protests, who's organizing them, basically it's six different groups, some of which have got pretty tight connections to Hamas and other various agencies, we'll say, and Stop the War Foundation for one of these who we know has found it has, uh, connections to, uh, Moscow, pretty, uh, pretty much, I think all of these will have, um, have you looked into those at all? Um, I mean, I'm going to try and do your research on my own on, on these ones, but just a bit beyond what the hit, what the newspaper had, that would be my question. Thanks. Yes. So we have an active investigation on this and few other events that we believe to be connected to the Kremlin. And for those, many of you probably haven't heard of this, uh, I think it's called Team Doppelganger, a Russian group of disinformers have been involved in many disinformation campaigns online. We are, invest we are doing quite a bit investigation 
with a pretty big group of people, but I'd, I think you have to wait at least. I'm not going to give them a time frame for this, but there will be a big story on this. Hopefully people will be interested in it and hopefully people will go spreading as far and wide as possible, because I think it's going to be a big, another example of, of Russian operations in, in at the heart of New York. Yeah, yes, definitely there's something going on uh, in terms of investigation of this topic. Are you awake? Bated breaths, by the way. I'm interested to know too. Sorry, Tim, I just stumbled all over you there. Go ahead, Nale. Thanks. Yeah, so the, the question is in your research so far, have, have you come across that the strategy for spreading disinformation and, and even lies is nuanced or is it just a fire hose tactic and what disinfo nuggets have you been most surprised by that it is actually disinformation thanks sorry about the finish uh, it's always i love my language so like so Anyway, so the most surprising, that's a tricky question. It's so tricky that I even forgot. Maybe you can repeat the first part because I'll answer that first. What was the first part of the question? Yeah. So the first part was that is the tactics for spreading disinformation nuanced or is the fire hose approach the only one thing? Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. It is nuanced. It is definitely nuanced. If you look at, for example, the reporting on, on the Nord Stream. So Russia likes to utilize different levels of disinformation. So uh, the Nord Stream narrative was created by Cy Hirsch. And the, I guess the assumption here is that he was fed information that came from a source connected to the Kremlin. How do we know this? Parts of his reporting contain some phrases directly translated from Russian to English that has never been used in the English language before. So there is the saying, very traditional Russian saying, I have to check it, but anyway, there is the saying that he used in one of his texts and there it's the only occasion this phrase has ever been uttered online or in English. And it's a, this kind of Russian phrase. Oh, I think I... Was it about words in their underwear? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yes. It's quite evident that the, the narrative came from somebody who is a native Russian speaker, which kind of suggests that one of these sources is a native Russian speaker, which would make it quite a biased uh, source of information when you talk about Things like sabotaging Nord Stream, yeah, right. And they, of course, he blamed uh, the U.S. intelligence agencies for that. So there is this more sophisticated level, like this long analysis uh, of. I would say that now we see a lot of this time for peace. It's time for peace negotiations. This our anti-war segment. It not really. It doesn't really utilize the firehose so of folks, folks who this multi-channel, high-volume approach. It's rather than. This, it's more this sophisticated approach that, okay, haven't we seen enough debt? Let's have this, these peace negotiations because the Ukrainians have suffered enough. 
even though the Ru- Russia has been saying that they are not ready for negotiations for basically the whole year. Yeah, it's, it works on many levels, but we could also, we shouldn't disregard the political level or the business. So a lot of Russian business has been making its way to Europe since, or let's say, 2007, oh. especially. So they've been investing quite heavily, like Russian oligarchs and, and businessmen have been investing in the West and buying a lot of companies, a uh, lot of critical infrastructure and so on. But it's just this hybrid warfare and firecalls of falsehood is just one small part of it. But it, when you put it all together, it works extremely well. Uh, yeah. So if you're interested, maybe if you want to read more on this, there is, it's called Gerasimov Doctrine. So it's basically the plan for Russia's hybrid warfare operations. And it's, they've been using it for a long time, but it seems that the West doesn't really care or doesn't really want to counter it in any way, which is a shame. And about the narratives, what really comes to mind at this point, many of them have been just ridiculous in a sense. I feel like where I had to do a lot of research, I think there were two. One of them was the NATO, NATO expansion that required a lot of research and figuring out what was going on. A second one was the Odessa clashes of 2014. That was, it's still quite complex issue. And I don't think there's any, there are good guys and bad guys in, in a way, uh, in this whole event, it's a tragic event. Uh, and again, we can, we can talk about what, for, for example, means, uh, agreements, both means agreements where both parties were breaking the, the agreements. They, in many ways, they are more nuanced than say bioweapons labs or neo-Nazis in Ukraine, but I don't, they're not, they didn't really surprise me in a way, but they are more nuanced and they aren't as simple narratives as many others. But yeah, maybe I'll, I'll, maybe I'll finish here. It's been a great segment again. Uh, a lot of tough questions. I, I hopefully at least partly answered and I'll be back on next Tuesday. Uh, from 7 till 9 p.m. keep time. So hopefully you can join and let's have a talk. It's been great today. Thanks, everyone. Thank you very much, Pekka. Always an absolute pleasure to have you up. I guess I will see you on Tuesday.